So I'm Alan. I'm Brent. And uh, together we do something called the AB Testing Podcast. Uh, we've done it for a couple of years now, pushing two years. Uh, almost two years. And uh, just uh, for fun today, we're going to uh, take a recording of this and make this episode 29 of our podcast. And uh, Evan will send you a link. I'll edit out the parts that are that Brent will be probably inappropriate at some point. So we're going to cover that. Uh, honest. I'll be honest. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so the way we do our podcast is the way we're going to do our presentation today. You don't see a big slide deck behind us. You see some things we're going to talk about, about surviving software in the being a software engineer in the 21st century, fancy, fancy title to get you here, although I know the pizza is what got you here. Uh, we're going to talk about, we talked about A-B testing and cross that off. We'll talk a little about what's changing in software engineering, and then we're going to talk a lot about how you survive and adapt and change and the processes people in tech. And then most importantly, we'll take questions at the end, but even moster, no? Yes. More, Good thing I can edit the podcast, right? Even more, more importantly, is that this is, this can be totally interactive. If you you don't have to wait for the end to have questions, given that we don't have slides to go back and forth on, and we just we have notes on things we want to talk on. But if you like, I don't get that, or tell me more about that, or uh, in my group we have a situation close to that, but it's different. What would you do here? Totally interrupt us and. Um, after we're done yelling at you, we'll answer the question uh, to our full extent. Work for you, Brent? Yeah, that works. The you shouldn't you should feel welcome to interact. Right, we have a, a list of topics. Both Alan and I could probably do for every one of these bullet points. I think we could probably do a whole day talk on Mo it. Mostly, Brent. He talks a lot. My job is to keep him in line. I, I do bloviate. <laughs> I apologize. Um, so, if we hit on a topic that seems particularly relevant. Like, speak up, it's okay. If you want to go deeper, that's fine. We'll, we'll go broad across this space as we go through it, uh, but we encourage interactivity. All right, um, so, so first, do you want to talk a little bit about... Do you have a plan here? What's going on? Yeah, it's right, right there. Okay. <laughs> if you read, my, we're my, also, our <laughs> podcast is very low budget, and uh, so, we, we refuse to prep, and we're no, well known for ADHD. We, we actually prepped very well. <laughs> Brent has a nice list here. Again, my job is twofold, threefold. One, give you some good information. Two, keep Brent in line. Three, give Brent a bad time any chance I can. And, and he does all of those quite well. So right. shall we start by enumerating kind of what's, what's different? Brent and I have well, been doing this for like 20 years. You've been doing so let's, let's talk about ourselves a little bit. This, this. I, I don't like talking about myself. Okay. Okay, I'll, I'll go talk quick. about you. Okay. All right. So... Uh, both Alan and I have been in the software industry for 20 plus years. Uh, I'm, I'm not as old as I look. He's Wait, the other he, way around. He's older. Um, the uh, most. Sorry, uh, I'm going to interrupt you. Yes. <laughs> Alan, you should Wait, take that one. Just for those that maybe didn't hear, the question was <clears throat> what were punch cards like? <laughs> Uh, there's a certain gesture I could use, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, no, I've been doing this for 20 years. Uh, I'll jump in. So you all mostly look pretty young. Some of you probably weren't born in the early to mid 90s. Um, 90s kids, raise your hands. Yeah, yeah, I'm old. <laughs> so um, when your parents bought a computer in the early 90s, it came with some music software. Or No, actually, you, you had to buy a sound card separately. So it came with some software from a company called MidiSoft. 
And that crummy software, I tested it. That, that was my intro. So I was beyond punch cards. I got to use, I was pre-Win 3.1. I got to use Windows 3.0 with multimedia extensions. And that was my beginning. I joined Microsoft about two years after that. And I've been there ever since. All right, Brent, blah, blah, about yourself. I'm done. Oh, good question, by the way. Yeah, fantastic question. Let's have some more of that. Um, and, and on the podcast, like he, he does use those hand gestures, just interpreted it as your number one. That's, that's what I do. Um, so we've been in this uh, 20 plus years. So the majority of the time we've been wearing the, the title of test. Uh, Alan's been test director. Uh, up until about five years ago, I was middle management in test. Um, and then Microsoft began to go through a transition. Okay. You want to talk? I was going to, but I'll stop. Okay. Um, Alan and I, during that period of time, even up until the transition, we had been talking about this transition, I think, what, three years before it actually pulled the trigger? Yeah, because a lot of it was happening in a lot of places. It's been sort of a slow wave across the industry. So It has. Um, as part of that, uh, Microsoft not only went towards a unified engineering model, uh, but they're shifting much more towards using agile practices. Uh, Ish. Yes. And, and a lot more uh, data stuff. So five years ago, I transitioned into a dev role into Bing. I was a dev manager in that, that uh, team. Um, and then a couple years later, I've now transitioned into a data scientist role. I'm currently a data scientist manager uh, for the Azure Compute team at, at Microsoft. Um, also in that same period of time, uh, I've gone deep in, in Agile. I am a certified uh, Agile trainer. Uh, I'm, I, I, we don't like, neither of us really care about certifications, but uh, it does give me permissions to train other trainers. Okay? Um, and Alan does stuff too. I give a lot you of talks. You want to give a more detail? So, um, no, but you know what a data scientist is? Anybody? <laughs> It's a statistician who lives in Silicon Valley. But um, bum. All right. Yeah. So Brent talked about, I'm going to move on. Uh, Brent talked about some of the uh, uh, stuff he's doing, some of the stuff Microsoft is doing. But it's important to think about why teams and companies and organizations are moving to using more agile stuff and, and maybe unifying engineering teams and blurring the lines between what dev and test do. And a lot of that is because people see the value in shipping faster. And, and I'm a big fan of a book called The Lean Startup. You guys read The Lean Startup? Anybody? I know Evan hasn't because he doesn't do anything. <laughs> but <laughs> there's, I, I promised Evan yeah, I'd give him actually, at least five jabs today. Who in here was on Evan's interview loop? Nobody? All right. Oh, okay. Can we talk? We'll after? talk later. Yeah. yeah we'll... <laughs> <laughs> um, I, there's a line, and I'll horribly paraphrase from Lean Startup, but you just don't get value from your engineering effort until it's in the hands of customers. So if you can do that, get, get customers, your software, faster in a safe way where you can roll back if you screwed things up and, and, and a way where you have the potential to learn from them, there's all kinds of good things that come from that. And so I guess that drives a lot of the why on getting value to customers. They, they stick with your product longer because you're getting continued upgrades and value. Um, all kinds of good things happen. What are some other reasons, it's other not things just, that have changed? So it's not just speed. Um, 
it, also from, from Reese's book, adaptability. So it's um, a lot of folks view Agile as about, oh, we got to go as fast as possible. It's, that's a, a wrong way of looking at it. You have to be as adaptable as possible. And when you are, you end up going fast as possible. Okay, it's an important distinction. Uh, adaptability right now is a huge business imperative in, in any service environment. Your competitors are uh, very likely, uh, let me put it this way. So you guys, who's your number one competitor? Someone speak it out. Who? Zillow. Okay. I've heard of them. Yes. Um, how long, how much time does it take to some, or for one of your customers to come to Redfin and decide to go to Zillow? Even, even that long? <laughs> right. right. So I, I hope this is going somewhere. Yeah, switching. <laughs> What the switching costs in an in a internet-enabled service world is like that. So you have to constantly stay on track. You have to constantly adapt to what is the value that your customers are getting out of your product. Um, the, the world that we used to live in 15 years ago, um, where you could win by being the first to market, doesn't work anymore. You could win by... Um, Microsoft strategy used to be we had a whole lot of money, so we would let our competitors go find the successful market and then we'd apply our resources and then go steal it from them. Right? So we didn't have to invest in the R&D. Hey, didn't you work in Bing? How'd that work out for you? It's still ongoing. <laughs> but I was the last uh, test manager for the, the Zune uh, PC client. How'd that work out for you? Uh, not quite as well. Did you work on Kin also? Actually, <laughs> actually um, yeah, I did. Um, no, so Ken, the Ken product unit had been dead, but there was one deal we had with Verizon. I ended up being, as a test manager at the time, I was actually the last person to do a test pass on Ken because there was no way I was going to have any of my team do this. <laughs> Good. Um, <laughs> Look at right. uh, K-I-N. Um, I'll, I'll paraphrase and loot up on the internet. Um, a, can I call it a failure? Yeah. A, a colossal failure? Massive? Uh, we we actually ended up making money with... We with were, uh, Microsoft's going to make this phone for tweens. And they're very excited about it. It had lots of cool features. And it made it almost a week or two in the stores where they pulled them all and canceled. It was essentially a smart dumb phone. So it was a dumb phone, but you could still do some things. You could go up on the internet. You could do some email. But the big deal was at that time, um, a tween could go buy it for 40 bucks. Right? Um, completely failed. <laughs> All right. The, yeah, quite, quite a history there. Are you going to screw up Azure yeah. too? No. Okay. No. The, um, the other thing, so if, if adaptability is a business imperative, uh, then one of the problems is that the traditional methods, the, the waterfall methods, the, the engineering methods invented, say, 20 years ago, no longer scale. If you are competing with your competitors on features on a day-by-day -day basis, you can't afford a month-long test pass. Okay? Just simply, you can't. Um, when I went to Bing, uh, that's where I took my dev job, the 
when you shift to a world where the, the scale of the problems that you have go to a couple of orders of magnitude bigger, then you have to start inventing new techniques, right? Uh, in Bing, we ingest thousands of data feeds every single day. The size, the number, the shape, the schema changes every day. Uh, in, in addition to that, we have all of our developers within 15 minutes, any single developer can check in and it goes to prod within 15 minutes. And any developer can do that within the stack. Um, we have multiple layers in the stack, and of course that can change at any moment. And in addition to that, it's Bing, it's a search engine. We have a machine learning engine in the background that's also trying to take customer input, taking the new widgets that uh, individuals, developers have put together, and combining them to create a UI experience that changes every refresh. How do you test that? You don't, you can't. Uh, bugs in Bing are completely worthless. You file a bug in Bing, a dev will come to you and say, why are you doing this? I can't act on it. What, what then becomes more valuable is the patterns, uh, data analysis, data analytics, understanding when is, this, when is the system making these changes? That's fixable. Bugs, uh, again, you could have a bug in one refresh, you hit refresh, it goes away. But the pattern that caused that initial bug is still in the system. That's what has to be rooted out. Right? The, what are you looking at me for? You're in the middle of the story. I'm babbling a lot. <laughs> um, I'll go to the next thing then. The other thing I would say that is a big shift, I'll, go, I'll just finish this off. The other thing that, that I, that, this is how we roll. Um, the other thing I would say is a big I'll, shift. I'll stare at my watch in a minute. Is quality. Quality, the definition of quality changes in this world. Like in a world where bugs don't matter, what matters? Right. Um, there's a phrase that I use now. I, don't, I no longer refer to bugs and quality as synonymous. I talk about quality and code correctness. Quality is a subjective point of view. If you have a, a bug in a feature that no customer has ever used or does ever use, then it has no impact on quality. Okay. Um, a buggy piece of software that everyone uses is of higher quality than a bug-free piece of software that no one's using. Yeah, and that depends, it, given... You know, because there's like, if I asked this room, I'd get probably a hundred definitions of what quality is. But if uh, I use Jerry Weinberg's, which is quality is value to some person, can I get done what I need to get done? Uh, you can have pretty high quality products that if nobody uses them, you're not, nobody's getting value from them. Mm -hmm. Or all of the elegance, how many have iPhones? Do you love your iPhones? Do you love iTunes? Really? You're like the only person ever. <laughs> That's weird. So, um, but what else are you going to use, right? Um, Zoom. <laughs> Didn't they deprecate the software? So even if you have a Zoom, you can't like do no, anything with it? Because we still, we haven't exceeded the, the time limit on oh, the God. devices. Let's go for bureaucracy. Mm. So mm. what were you talking about? You were babbling about something. Oh, Quality. Yeah, it was Multiple me. definitions. Yeah, uh... 
So, oh, I'm reminded of, I, it clicked in. I, I, am, I am approaching 50. No, I'm beyond Weinberg. Okay. There's um, in Brian Merrick uh, in 90, 98, somewhere in the late 90s, introduced uh, what we call the Agile Quadrants, which uh, in these books called Agile Testing and More Agile Testing, uh, Janet Gregory and Lisa Crispin talk about a lot, which goes to your point, which is when you think about quality, you have engineering quality on one side and you have customer-facing quality over here. They're different. And you also have technology-facing and customer-facing kind of going the other way. Without me drawing everything out, your customers don't care what your code coverage is. They don't care how many tests you ran. They don't care how many failed and how many passed. They care about, do the experiences provide me value? You think about all the different things that cover what quality is and things we've done in testing and in, in author testing. out not something just testers do, but uh, like unit testing very much in that technology-facing, uh, engineering-facing quality. Write good unit tests, get good go coverage, make sure they pass. Kind of in that other quadrant way up here, you think about performance testing, reliability, even monitoring is up there. Those things are a lot closer to measuring what the customer perception of quality is. But at the very end, uh, what's the best way to get the customer perception of quality? Measure from the customer, right? right? We can try as as hard as we can as as engineering teams to go. Okay, this is going to be the customer perception of quality. And Brent's a data scientist, so we can probably predict what the customer perception is going to be. But that's certainly part of a big part of my my challenge. The so is there anyone here who's agile trained? Raise your hand if you are. Just just Brent and one one person no, in the back. All right, two whatever, two. All right. All right. Now a couple other people stepped in. Do you guys know about the Poppendikes? I know yeah. Mary. Yeah. So her husband, Tom, in terms of his uh, description of quality, I'm very, very fond of it. Uh, or it's not a description, but a quote. He said, everyone in software engineering needs to remember that no one ever in the history of time has ever wanted software. No one wants software, okay? What they want is their problem solved, okay? Software is a means to the end. Bug correctness, bugs, um, may or may not be a means to the ends. If, if they get in the way of their problem getting solved, right? right. The, to continue on with Lasso, what's changed? There's, uh, so we, we, we talked about there's a lot of new engineering methods. Uh, waterfall, thankfully, is slowly dying but it's it's uh, holding on with waterfall light. was awesome we didn't even need to hire testers till the end the docs always got done because we couldn't go on until they were done so it was great yeah i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> um when you shift to this dry sarcasm it just bothers me um the you know what bothers me if i can interrupt yeah. it's like i think in some vague power play you scooted your chair farther forward than mine I just noticed that. I just wish the chair was a little bit lower. No. I'm using this as a desk and we're tired of holding it. Well, well stop looking at it. The, so there's, there's lean, uh, lean and fast agile methods. Uh, that is a, a new engineering model. There's, there's safe Kanban scrum. Uh, there's about 10 that are really popular. These are really coming in and helping businesses to be adaptable. In addition to that, there's two key, uh, new engineering roles that we now see in so sort of modern... I'm going to interrupt. Don't you think that 
and um, this is actually being a real question that I'm has to be brewing in somebody's head. Don't you think these all these processes and names kind of almost get in the way sometimes? I think people get so stuck in trying to go, oh, we're going to do this process, and they get married to the process, and they forget that they're trying to make software to solve somebody's problem. The, the, the processes help. I mean, if you want to pick there, one. There is a bit. There you, is a... There is a bit of that, of the, the monkey's experiment. Do you guys are you aware of the monkey's experiment? You will be in a minute. What's that? No, not that one. <laughs> That's a Shakespeare or something or other. Um, the monkey's experiment, in a, in a nutshell, is essentially, they, they did an experiment years ago. Uh, they got, I'll just make up a number, let's say five monkeys into a cage. They put a ladder and a bunch of bananas. Okay. I like this story. I'll what, let him, I'll what let him they finish. Did, what they did is monkeys, of course, like bananas, and so they'll go after the bananas, climb up the ladder and acquire the bananas. What they did, though, is any monkey that did that, they would spray it with cold water. Okay? And monkeys don't like cold water and started getting trained that going after the bananas was uh, an upsetting experience. Then they changed it. Then what they, what they did, because monkeys still try, they really like bananas. Then what they did is when a monkey went after the bananas, they would spray every monkey but that one. Right? The first, one was the, the first uh, stimulus was to train the monkeys to get them to realize, hey, there's an, a punishment associated with going after the bananas. Now they shifted to, oh, and by the way, that punishment that you got used to avoiding, now if someone else goes after it, you're going to get the punishment. Okay? Monkeys um, didn't like that, and they very quickly got trained to uh, beat up the monkey that went after the banana. They didn't want to get squirted. Then what they Who wants to get squirted, right? All right. Then what they did is so once they had that as a stable behavior inside that cage, they swapped out the monkeys. They would, they would take one monkey out, put a new one that's never experienced it, but they didn't change anything. So they put the bananas in, and the old monkeys, would if that new one went after the bananas, he'd get his butt kicked. They kept on doing that until eventually none of the monkeys had ever been squirted with water, but the behavior persisted. And that's kind of the same thing when we talk about processes. It's, it's, it's an encouragement to, sure, you're used to things. Think about why. Does it still add value in, in, in the environment that you're in today? What can you change? In terms of the names, like, again, as an Agile coach, I would say the first thing you should do if you don't have an Agile coach in-house, if you don't have someone who understands this topic very deep, hire one. Um, it is hard to just shift. It is very easy. Agile is actually a much harder practice than waterfall. Waterfall is very structured. Do this, then this, then this, then this. Adapting means you have to know when to change. When to, change, when to say that rule that we had last week is no longer applicable here. So how many of you ever like, have tried to change something at work? Like, let's, let's change the way we do X. Anybody ever? How many of you have heard... Uh, the res biggest resistance was, but that's the way we've always done it. It's a, it's, it's a, there's a name for that, but I, it's, the name, my name is, I don't like it. 
but it's it's common and you that that organizational change part that convincing part is a, a big challenge but people can get really stuck in that's the way we've always done it i've heard it you know at microsoft a few hundred thousand times there's there's a phrase right if it ain't broke don't fix it um if you think it ain't broke then my question would be uh how are you measuring that uh okay you want to kick stuff i don't even know where you are on your little note list i'm done talking about the i, I got my, i got my list over here all right do you want to talk about kind of what's how you survive this stuff yeah so uh, I should talk a little bit about what I'm doing now, and that may kick some of this off. So we're changing at Microsoft. A lot of teams doing uh, unified engineering. Big fan of it. Oh, it's like, like so unif it's the name I use because I hate the term combined engineering that Microsoft uses. It just means we have a software engineering team, not a separate dev and test team. A lot of teams are going that way in various different flavors, like Windows has. Check this out. Uh, or the operating systems group. They have engineering teams or, so, or development teams, I guess. And then, because we got rid of testers, they have quality teams um, who, who do uh, not as much. Uh, they do mostly uh, some data analysis, some adding metrics, uh, measurements to the code, um, user experience testing, et cetera, perf reliability. Those things all happen there. Uh, DevDiv has this developer division has the same thing. Um, where they call it the E&I, the Experiences and Insights team does, does sort of the same thing. So if you're a developer, no, if you break something, you, you, break, you fix your own stuff. The intent of the quality team is that they would focus mostly on uh, customer focus, purely on uh, data science, uh, analysis, telemetry, uh, the illities, the, the illities um, and that the development team would own testing you know, most of the testing of their own code. But I won't say they've done that transition particularly well yet. Not Windows. Uh, yeah. So I was in Windows for a little while. By, um, I like to say that my two and a half years in Xbox was the best five years of my life and that my two years in Windows was the longest five years of my life. Oh, that's going to go on the podcast. That's cool. All right. So... Um, I, Which makes you what? Sixty now. Four months ago, Brent, you're number one. Yeah. Uh, four months ago, I joined a team that was all engineers, all developers, all former mm. developers, but they were smart about it. They wanted a, just an engineering team where the devs own their testing, but they realized very early on, hey, we don't know a lot about testing. We're not so good at this, and I'm sure there's a lot of stuff we're forgetting, letting through the holes. So my job is to be the quality guy on this team. So I'm the combination. Test manager, test architect, release manager, probably something else. I wear a lot, a lot of hats. A team, a small team, Microsoft size, probably um, huge everywhere else. It's about uh, sixty-five engineers. Uh, Evan knows that's small for Microsoft. And my job is to make sure the developers know how to test, so they have the right coaching and training to do that. The developers own all their own testing, all the way up through integration testing, including some performance from reliability testing. Um, and then I have a, a handful of uh, vendors we use for some uh, extra customer-focused experience testing and for some extra stuff. So, um, so my role has been to be part of an engineering team. I'm a peer with all the other engineering leads on the team. So we have a director of development and all the engineering managers who run the different feature teams, and I report to our, him. 
And so it's been a good experience in working in an engineering team, figuring out how, uh, what it means for a development team to own testing their own code and sort of some of the challenges they go through in doing that. I think one of the reasons it works for me is Brent and I have talked a lot about this idea of generalizing specialist or specializing generalist, meaning... Do you guys I, know this term? Have you heard it before? I, I was going to talk about it. Shut up. So it means I've described my role for a long time as someone who, does, who knows a little about a lot and a lot about a little, meaning I can, cover, I can, I can really kind of help out in a lot of different areas. There are some areas I go deep on. And the areas I tend to go deep on, may, uh, it may change depending on context. When I joined the Link team, um, it's called Skype for Business now, but they had a team, a very uh, junior test team, who were doing a lot of manual tests all day and didn't really know a lot about test techniques or they just needed a lot of extra work. So my job on that team... I just left Engineering Excellence where I was a sort of a trainer and a coach and a consultant. So I went into that team and I spent about a year and a half helping that team become sort of better rounded testers, knowing how to approach automation, throwing out most of their manual suite because it was useless uh, and kind of turning them into what was, a, I thought, a pretty well-oiled team. Then, so, but very high level kind of organizational change and training kind of stuff. Then I went to Xbox where it was, we need someone who knows C really well, can write a lot of tools and, and test tools and things to get Xbox One out the door. So I did that for two years, and it was a blast. And then I doing sort of a, uh, and then I did sort of a combination of that on the my, the my transitional team in Windows. I'll call it just call it the transitional team. Maybe that's better. And then I'm, and then I'm, I'm like I said, I'm doing sort of a release management quality architect sort of role in this team. So the the line that runs through there is I think no matter how your engineering team or your development team or your team is put together, you need, in addition to people that can just crank out good code, because you always want some of those, right? I won't ask you to raise your hand if you're really good at cranking out good code. We always need those people. But you also need people who can plug holes. Once I changed my, uh, my LinkedIn uh, profile to hole filler, and because uh, that's kind of I, I, my job, I, I've told all my managers this. I figure out what's not getting done and make sure it gets done, whether I do it myself or work through others to make sure it gets done. So my role is to recognize what those holes are and then get them filled. Oh, and by the way, I, I have a tangent. We're famous for our tangents. Do you guys get like a lot of unsolicited LinkedIn recruiter mail? So I, I know how to fix that. Change, I changed my LinkedIn title to generic employee. I don't get any more emails. <laughs> that one's free. You can do that. <laughs> so you were going to add something. Yeah, I want to shift a bit deeper, right? Because um, Alan is in a unique situation. His last team change, right? Most of the teams that we go and talk to are in transition. They already have, say, dev test PM, and they're trying to figure out how do they move into sort of a, a more of efficient team model, right? Um, Alan got lucky, uh, in, in my humble opinion, is that he started off it with a luck. Uh, it actually wasn't. He was looking for, <laughs> he was looking for the perfect job for him. It, for was, what, it, like it, nine was, it was serendipity. What, yeah. who, what's the quote about luck that says luck is, uh, I can't even paraphrase it. Yeah, something like that. Like I was ready for luck to strike me. So I, I, and 
I think story, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm going to interrupt yeah. anyway. No, I was going to go back to, uh, so one of the experiences after I left Bing, um, I was uh, instrumental in helping the SQL server team uh, go from uh, sort of the similar point that you guys seemed like uh, that you guys are at now, where you have these combined roles or not com- separated roles. How do you merge towards um, uh, a more efficient team, for lack of a better word? Um, there's a lot of struggles. Uh, dev, for example, they, they will constantly ask, well, what does QA do now? Yeah, and even when QA knows what they're going to do now and explain it, they, they still ask this question because one of the biggest problems is, um, in, in essence, a lot of devs, and, and I'm sure it's not here, but a lot of devs view testing as menial work. Right? Why do I have to do that? It's below me. Okay. Um, and it's really not. You actually had a quote. Uh, piggyback off of the, the quality speech. Who owns quality? The Twitter that you did a few months ago. I don't know what you're talking about. Fair enough. <laughs> um, you said something if quality is the customer subjective value, something, 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 then who on the team owns quality? Producing value. If quality is producing value to some customer, then who on this team owns quality? Right. All right. right. Rhetorical question. Everyone owns creating value for the customer. Right. I'm sure I said that. I don't remember. It was on God, you're old. (laughs) Um, The... So Dev goes through a, a transition period uh, if you guys choose to go with this sort of model, tests will go through a transition period. Uh, I am a huge proponent uh, of of the unified uh, engineering model. Uh, so I am too, but I don't know that it matters. And I'm going to interrupt because one story... It doesn't matter as long as the roles are efficient and working together. So the second the roles become silos, devs throwing stuff over the fence to test, that's then the exact it doesn't work. Point. I think the, the key is that engineering teams, regardless of what you call yourselves, I was talking to Evan earlier, and, and everybody should just get to make up their own title because titles get in the way sometimes of, of engineering. You think, oh, you have, you're a, you have this title, whatever it is, and so I don't have to give you the time of day. But I remember in, when I worked on Windows CE, that's an eye roll for people that missed it, um, I helped, this was probably 2004, I trained our dev team to write unit tests. And this was new to them. It's weird because developers about every other company in that time period were writing their own unit tests, but it was this brand new thing for these Windows CE developers. But the weird thing that happened was I had developers come to me and say, hey, if we're writing unit tests, what are the testers going to do? And I thought, I can explain this and do a reasonable question. What scared me more is when a tester came to me and said, hey, if the developers are writing unit tests, what do I do? And I thought, oh, that's an interesting way to look at that. But when I think of my career, I spent probably the first at least five years writing unit tests. We played this game of uh, codependent ping pong, I call it, uh, where the developer gives me some code and I quickly write a little test for it to prove that it's broken. And I, I feel good because I found a bug. I'm validated. 
I give my co- give the bug to the developer. He goes, oh, thank you for finding a bug. Thank you for being my safety net. That's great. I love you. And he fixes it. And then he gives it to me again. And I go, I, I spend a little more time on it. And I find another bug. And I go, that's great. He fixed it. And I found another bug. I feel more validated. Here, here you go again. He goes, why, thank you. This is great. I love you more. And this goes back and forth. And it's really... Uh, Maybe the codependent metaphor is too far, but not too far off. But this ping pong, when you think about efficient software, it's really inefficient to do that, right? So a couple things come out of developers writing a lot of their own tests. Is One, uh, I'm a big fan, and I'll say everybody has to do this, I'm a big fan of test-driven development, and especially even more behavior-driven development. I'll talk about what those are in a minute for those who do you, don't know. Do you guys know these terms? I said I'd just talk about these in a minute for those who don't know what they are. But I said I'd, we're short I on said, time. We are if they n- already know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was Brent's attempt at giving me a bad time. So Geezer. it's very efficient for, if I'm going to write this code, if I write some tests for it before or while I'm writing it to make sure it works, uh, developers that write begin to write good unit tests, end up writing more testable code. Because a lot of times, I'm sure developers in the room have done this, like, I'm going to write some code, and you think, I'm going to write a test for this. Well, shit, I can't test that. And you go, oh, I'm going to refactor this. What you end up with is better code in the first place. Because you have to write testable code from the beginning, and that code ends up being more, usually more maintainable when it's rolled out to people. Yeah? In terms of testing your own code, don't you impart bias in your test? Because you wrote the damn thing, so you know what it's supposed to do, and then you test the functionality it's supposed to do, and not what it's supposed to do. So, so is it better to have two minds to collaborate on that? Ooh. That's a, we've, we've, Can I take that one? Uh, go ahead. Go ahead, yep. Brent. So, better to have two minds? Yes. Separate? No. So, um, <laughs> huge proponent of pair programming, where you have two people looking at it at the same time. Um, but the, the trick with TDD, the, the, the brilliance of TDD is you test your code first. So you writing up the test cases that need to pass before you write the code. Since you haven't written the code yet, you haven't yet been perverted by the assumptions that you're about to write. So one of the things uh, that I did, and then I want to piggyback on this, and, and that, that was a great question because that ends up being one of the challenges with the shift. When I went to Bing, I told you I, I went into dev. This was at the time where Bing was going with combined engineering. My team was 50% dev and 50% test. Is this a long story? No. Okay. The testers ended up being um, the de- better developers in the world where we have to ship every 15 minutes. Right. The, the, because the turns out writing code in, in small chunks is not that hard. If you have a, a rock star uh, dev architect on the team and, and say you need a, an, uh, you're using an N log N and you need a log or a O of N algorithm, you, you need to have the ability to have that second person to go and ask. You need to be able to do knowledge sharing. Uh, but other than that, the 80% of the coding problems, anyone can do. But the thing where tests ended up being a huge advantage is they already understood the value and how to test. It ended up, um, what happened is my team first came, uh, first were very polarized. 
I had a bunch of devs that say, we're specialists. We are the ones that own this code up and down the stack. Um, but we're not going to do our testing because we own enough complexity. And I said, honestly, what I did is uh, I ran my team. If you guys are familiar with Kanban, I ran my team with a Kanban model. Uh, it's highly transparent. Yeah. And you, you only ship in two-week chunks. Okay. So anybody does something wrong, it, it's only uh, two weeks of one person's code that, that could have an impact. And it's very easy to react and, and repair. Um, but what ended up happening is, is I, I didn't force these guys to shift. I forced them to communicate, be transparent, walk through the board. And as they went through that, as everyone was transparent, these guys were realizing that the testers were getting their stuff out faster. They were getting more features done faster. Um, and then they started shifting. Right. Once the team started sharing knowledge, the people with the super awesome, very highly specialized algorithms started leveraging and learning from the test guys. And once that test or that knowledge learning goes, uh, then this team becomes a rock star. I, when I left Bing, I'll close with this. When I left Bing, Alan really wants to interject something. When I left Bing, I had one of my peer teams came to me. A PM came to me. Uh, I had a team of seven at that time. And he said, Brent, I don't know what you're doing, but your team of seven is kicking my team of 30s ass. And I said, we should meet because I know what we're doing. It's not magic. We just think about it in a different light. Go ahead. Let, let me give you also a, a sort of a pragmatic uh, answer to that from my recent past. We had a uh, bad bug in our product. It's not released yet, so how bad can it be, right? Um, but our VP was pissed, so it was that bad. And it was like, how is this? And I got the, how did we miss this? How did this get through? And it turned out that developers who are learning to write tests, like our team was, they're very, they wrote really, really good, happy path tests. Our product, as long as you use our product as expected, no, not even close to the edge, stay in the middle of the room, it ran great. But it wasn't until then that it hit me because I'm wearing all these hats that I realized oh yeah, there's a whole bunch of other testing I've been doing my whole life that we're not doing yet. So what I did there, easy thing, I met with the engineering managers and people on their team, little half hour meetings. We did a brainstorm, made a mind map of all the edge cases and things like th looking at quantities. You want to be thinking about, uh, we'll look at places where concurrency that can happen, places where large amounts of data can cause a problem, uh, things like that. You know, look at you know non-English characters, or if it, if it applied, etc. And all those things that were testers are traditionally really good at helping the don't de just think about those because one of the things that a generalizing specialist does that maybe a pure specialist doesn't do is we go into the 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 ten foot level and dive in, and then go back out at ten thousand foot level and look around and kind of see how stuff fits together. So yes, it is. You could say that you're biased to your own code. But you can, there's plenty of ways to get help on that. Because I think I know plenty of developers who are really good at testing their own code. So I think it's certain, I, I know for a fact it's certainly possible. And for those where it's difficult, I think it's a learnable trait. It, it is absolutely a learnable trait. And then there's always the, the model of pair programming. Um, although it's, it's much like my experience with TDD and in helping, uh, let's say, specialist devs learn, it's much like 
the speech, you can lead a horse to water, right? It, they have to be motivated to want to drink from it. And if they're not, it's, 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 it's going to be a hard fought battle. The other thing I'll also share around TDD. No, I want to highlight the benefit. You can, okay. Evan has a question. Okay. Um, the other thing about TDD or, or doing this test, <laughs> having the test and the developer owning it, and when, with a model where, again, within 15 minutes it goes to prod, it creates a sense of ownership on the individual. First and foremost, if their check-in within 15 minutes can go to prod, then they don't have to worry about the blame game of, oh, no, my, my fix is fine. It's that you didn't integrate right. Right? It's theirs. They're in control of their own destiny. And as they learn, um, so I'm a big proponent of balancing the preventative and reactive measures. And as you learn where your preventative measures weren't working, you add tests. And as you add tests, you realize, oh, my God, the way I've written my code makes it a real pain in the ass to add tests. I need these tests. I'm going to refactor my code. And what, I've, what I have noticed that every team that, that goes into this, that that code gets refactored into much more maintainable, much more testable patterns across the entire team. And when you have that type of code, your ability to produce new features and change features starts to go like this. Getting in a rhythm is, is actually key, I think. Evan. You don't know what the customers are going to do. So, oh, actually, that's a, that's a really good comment. The comment was repeat what the question was. The question was, if customers aren't going to try those crazy things, why bother testing for them? And it goes back to the comment earlier. If, it, if, a bu if nobody finds a bug, does it affect quality? Um, I don't think there's a real reason to go super crazy on the edge cases, but like there is a particular object we could pass to a message. As long as we had one or two, which was the normal usage case, uh, everything was fine, but when someone added four of those or five of those, everything broke. So that's not really on the edge. So a little bit beyond the center happy path. Um, it gets to a point, this is going to lead into what I'm going to force Brent to be the next section, which is, there's a comment I heard probably seven years ago, maybe a little longer, at a GTAC conference in uh, uh, San Jose, a Google test automation conference, where it says, sufficient monitoring is equivalent to testing. So if you have the monitoring in your system to know when every failure has happened and get, get, and get the right alerts on that and know what paths are being used and what's happening there, sufficient monitoring to cover all those cases can replace testing. I want to be careful with that one, though. I knew you'd say that. I'm right. trying to, to tee you up here. Go, Brent. Right. So you guys have heard, I'm sure by now, this concept of testing in production. Yes? Okay. It does not, please, dear God, it does not mean take your test suite and turn them into monitors that are on production. Okay, it means you do need those monitors, but it means you're looking at the, the you're using your customers as your testers. It means that you have. Well, that's a loaded statement, too, right? People freak out about that. No. It's, okay, go, go on, go on. Customers, I'll, I'll, I'll make my point. Customers are fantastic testers. They are the, and this is a point I always make for yeah. testers who go, I am the voice of the customer. I, I am the customer advocate. I am the customer, and you're not the customer. Oh, excuse me. That wasn't very nice. But yeah, you, if you can use the real customer as your proxy for the real customer, 
yeah. you're always going to be better off than using a proxy for the, a, a different proxy for the real do, customer. Do you guys do flight control here? Evan, no. <laughs> Evan, Evan's nodding his head and he said, he well. Said, no. okay. <laughs> yeah, so imagine that you have a whole bunch of monitors that can tell you, uh, what's your name? Kevin, okay. So Kevin just did a check-in, 15 minutes. Uh, it's now in prod. How does Kevin know that he just broke uh, all Redfin customers in Georgia? Do you have monitors that would allow you to know that? In that type of world, Kevin kind of needs to know that, right? You need to have the ability to detect that something that the business values just is on the floor. Now, uh, so flight control, uh, also known as exposure rings, is what you do is you take Kevin's code, you put it on, um, uh, I'll call it exposure ring, you put it on a segment of your customers, say only 100 people can see Kevin's code, and then you have important signals. If it passes those signals, then you broaden it to a, a, an order of magnitude, and you keep doing that until there's... Um, some some threshold where it's no longer value to keep do, just flip it all on, right? Um, when we talk about tests in production, really, really at the end of the day, what a test case is for is to reduce business risk. That's the whole point. You can do some of those things you need to do to do it preventively. It would not be a good idea for Kevin to do something where he checks in this fix and then anyone signs in and it deletes the customer database. This would probably be a bad idea, right? But he has a unit test for that. That's all right. Right. <laughs> but he should have a unit test for that. And, and some mechanism as part of that 15 minutes to prod should be in place to check that no one can take out the entire business. Then things like, okay, someone just signed in with some weird character, right? That you can use your telemetry and you can use um, a reactionary process to, to get that going. Google, for example, one of the things Google does, they used to be well-known for shipping crap all the time. They were always in beta, okay? And I used to have arguments with people at Microsoft. He's like, oh, they're always in beta. They don't ship high quality. Um, they're a fad, okay? They're not a fad. I had actually these arguments, and, and I'm like, you know what? Their stock price and the number of users does not align with your statement, <laughs> right? And the only way to make that for that to make sense, and this is still in one of my test gigs, um, the only way to make sense is that bugs don't necessarily equate to quality. Or perhaps what's more important is as a business, you're working to not prevent pain, but minimize overall pain. And what Google is masterful at, they instrument everything. So they have a, a belief, a set of hypotheses. They say, we think these are, are catastrophic. We're going to pretest this code's not going to go out. But the amount of those test cases is not very large. Much, much, much smaller. They'll use exposure rings. They'll look at that instrumentation and they'll go, hey, looks like we have more than we expect of people from Georgia that are getting sign-in failures. Perhaps we should investigate that and see if we revert the code. So if you think of the purpose of tests is minimizing business risk, 
and you think about customer value as increasing it, then you then you have the liberty to start applying sort of an ROI to to how you are doing everything. You can use ROI to reevaluate your processes, reevaluate your practices. The the other thing Google's very good at is they can they can make a decision to revert the build, right? As I talked about, um, it would not go to the next exposure ring or yank it out. No, this is a bad build. We just destroyed uh, the experience for 100 people in Georgia. But they can also go, oh, it's not bad enough to stop it from moving forward. But it is bad enough. We're going to get this uh, fixed in, in the next iteration. And their iterations are either one or two weeks long. One of the things that I will say is that a huge time saver, something I'm very proud of, uh, in the last five years, I haven't had a bug database because I deal with it in real time. I, I, I first got test clean. I first got bug clean. Then I started a cadence around shipping, but small chunks. Because if you ship large chunks, it's really hard to disentangle. But if I have someone on my team of seven and each one is going to ship something new on a daily basis... If, it, if I come in the next morning and it's on the floor, it's really hard or really, sorry, really easy to fix it because it's one person's one code. He might even be able to, because the complexity is so small, he might even be able to fix it in line. Very quick QFE. Um, as we go through do, do that. They know, do they know what QFE means? Quick fix engineering release. What's the equivalent here? Hotfix. The, um, I forgot where it's going. Oh, good. Yeah. I can I can take a turn. So, yeah. <laughs> so I think we uh, probably want to wrap up here and then take a bunch of questions. I think I think we want to get your questions and try and make sure we can adapt those. So start thinking of those now. Um, what works for us is I can go back to pragmatic. Our product hasn't shipped yet, but we're uh, I'm thinking hard about the plan to get there, and so. We have, uh, do you guys use continuous integration server? You guys are shipping often. So we use, I'm a big fan of this. This is where you catch all the, all the kind of devastating things that could happen. You never want to get into a flight. And you want really reliable tests there because we gate the build on these. We gate deployment on these. So it's like someone submits a, a change. It goes through this gate, which is a build, unit test, these, all these other tests, these, uh, their protractor tests running against the web page. Um, if all those pass, the build gets deployed to our continuous integration environment. And that's updated all the time. So there's always a build out there with the latest check-ins in it. So that's going on all the time. And then what we're going to do, uh, I know you guys are working on shipping much more frequently, but we're just, my team is going to start with one release a week. So, and the good thing that happens from that is our team has been doing sort of, sort of talking about agile transition, uh, I joined the team in the middle of their their love of what I'll call Scrummer Fall, which is <laughs> we have a, a four-week iteration where there's some planning at the beginning, and then the devs write and bunch of do a bunch of work, and I make sure they're adding tests, but they still create a bunch of debt in there, in there. And then they try and cram in the rest of their debt at the end, and at the end of that four weeks, they have a really crummy product um, that stabilizes the first week of the next iteration. Uh, I'm being transparent. It's not perfect. But by moving to this, uh, by we're going to ship to some internal customers coming up soon, 
And by moving to that model, I got everyone bought off on shipping once a week, which means whether they want to think of things as a four-week iteration or not, I can now encapsulate things kind of line up into a weekly rhythm. And that's when Brent mentioned that earlier, I really clicked on that is having a shipping rhythm is really important. Teams can adapt to that. Like we know we have a, a one week rhythm where, you know, we're doing a bunch of validation on Monday and the bill and we do some self-hosting dog food on Tuesday and then we promote to production on Wednesday and then features are finished up for the next thing, Thursday and Friday and we start all over again. It's very nice. So we can crank that up that uh, speed up as needed, but it gets, one of the things I'm looking forward to in that is like Brent said, I don't, well, first of all, we have a bug database and it's populated with more things than I'd like right now. Uh, but we're going to, I'm in the back of my head, talking about uh, organizational change. My plan is little by little without the team realizing it, because I'm not even going to tell them they're doing one week iterations. It's just going to happen. And but little by little, we're going to become a little bit more agile and, and eventually, I, it's going to be like the perfect team for me. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to mold them to be like what I want. I, I want to be clear, though. My, you my, you my haven't teams, been clear all day. Uh, I'm going to try now. Um, my teams, I, so we don't have a bug database. And I haven't in five years. But that doesn't mean, so my teams still have developers in them. And they still are human which means they write bugs. So my team still writes bugs. But the way we treat bugs is when we encounter a bug that we have validated as customer impacting, that we have a process, we call it a swarm process. Any bug that comes to my team, the whole team jumps on it and that thing is gone within 48 hours. So bugs we view not only as something that's harming our customer, but it's harming the overall um, process uh, and quality of not just the code, but everything. So I'm an efficiency geek, and I mentioned earlier the, the code-dependent ping-pong game, which is very inefficient. Yep. And also, it's very inefficient. And uh, But by the way, that, that cost of a bug curve, it's mostly a myth. Don't draw, don't draw that ever. Holding on, there is a cost accruing debt. So if you're going to, yep, that's a great bug. We'll get to that when we get to it. That's inefficient. It's so much more efficient to go. Oh, there's a bug. Let's fix it. Let's get it. Let's, let's. We don't want. We don't want those. When you can get to that zero, and there's a transition step to get there. It doesn't happen all at once. I've I've known teams that have gone through this, and you kind of go for. Okay, let's have. And what I'm doing right now is we have zero bugs at the end of our iteration. Usually, it's about two days into the next iteration, and eventually we're going to be at zero bugs every Friday for the weekend, for we get our, our snap in. And that will eventually move into zero bugs all the time. I have this plan in my head all worked out. Um, there'll be bumps along the way, but this is, this is where I want to get to. But you can't just go to the team and go, that's it, everybody, fix all your bugs. We're not going to have any more. So, so you fix 100% of all customer-impacting bugs, or is there some process around you guys just going, no, we're not going to fix that one? I think that's a typical I, I My team customer impacting 100%. Yes. Uh, my my team fixes 100% customer impacting bugs. So what we will do, though, is the bugs where, hey, if a customer does this sequence of clicks at exactly midnight on February 29th it, using uh, a buy-die character set, yeah, I will make the call that that's, that might be a bug. I can look at your code. It's absolutely a bug. We're not going to fix it until we have proof that there's somebody impacted. 
I'm sure a lot of people in this room have worked on products that have had multiple, multiple releases. And I'm sure a lot of people in this room have bugs like, oh, we don't want to fix that, but we're going to hold on to it because we may get to it next time. The next time rolls around and you go, yeah, we're going to do that next it, time. And it, you end up with this bug that's like 40 years old. Okay, four years old. Yep. But, and it's like, yeah, we're going to get to that. No, that's one thing that I'm very adamant about and it's my bug triage. Like this is customer impacting. Yes, we're going to fix it and we're going to fix it very soon or we're not going to fix it at all. So, and that's the thing I want to, I want to hit a couple other things. Number one, we won't fix it. If that bug comes in the, the February 29th scenario, we'll go, nope, it's fixed. Okay. We track all of our bugs as tickets on our scrum board. Okay. I will take that ticket and it goes to the trash. I'm going to completely from here on out, ignore its existence. If it comes up again, I'll say, okay, do we have customer impact now? Okay. And if the answer is still no, it's going to go back into the trash. Would you, I have a, a, a real question. Well, let me, for let me no, just, no, no, no. I'm asking a question now. Okay. Would you, uh, <laughs> could you, would you, could you, Dr. Seuss. On a boat with a With a moat. Add, a um, like, I'm going to go add a little bit of instrumentation here. So I know if this, I'm going to track how many people on February 29th at midnight are, are, are entering bugs. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's so, most, to me, that's what I do. Most bugs where I would have with, with one of my reports isn't going to be so um, hyperbolic, right? It's going to be, hey, but it could if this, this, and this, and there's this other thing, and there's a reasonable expectation this could, but we don't have any proof that any customer has encountered that. I'll say, tell you what, go refactor it. Go ahead and add instrumentation. We're going to keep the code the way it is, but if, if you're proven to be right, I want to be able to switch on a dime. So make sure that the code can switch. And you can go the other way on that too. So imagine I'm gonna. This is purely. Um, I'm gonna make up a bad example. Cause that's what I'm best at. Like, say you uh, somebody comes and says, "Hey, look, I found this bug where if someone searches for a house that has an odd numbered address in a state where the abbreviation has an A as the last letter and it's, and it's over a million dollars, this weird thing happens to the page, or something bad happens. Again, totally made up. Not not a great example. But ideally, you could go. You could. And fixing it's going to be a real pain. Like, okay, what's the impact? Ideally, you want to be able to go to your data that you've collected from your site and go, how, how often does this happen? How likely is this to happen? And use data to help you make a decision on, on the customer impact of that as well. Yes, and if you have that data, then you should be able to align it very readily to what will be the business impact. Because you also have, if you have that data, then you have the data of all the other type of bugs, and now you have the ability to sort of work through customer impact in what's known as Pareto order or, or the 80-20 rule. The other thing I also want to bring out around this process that really makes things super sweet at the end of the day is it's really, it makes bug-free code or bug-ish free code is much easier to add features to. Much, much, much easier. But, yeah, and that's what the business I, is really valuing. I've, I've been preaching that to my team as we knock our our bug debt down. Is that you guys? We, if we're going to ship once a week, it's much easier to give value to customers if we're doing that on top of a stable code base. And they all nod their heads, and slowly, too slow for me, whittle down that debt. Okay, I think we've covered pretty much. Oh, we've everything. Covered, we've covered more. You don't get to bring your little note sheets anymore. I'm still bringing them. 
All right. Can we do some right. questions? Yeah. Please. Yes. Yes. So I, I like to think of that as sort of as like a two axis. Oh, sorry. So, <laughs> wow, they're watching me closely. So how do you how do you do you differentiate between the bugs that are minor but a lot of people hit and the and the kind of the really bad ones? And I like to think of bugs on that that two axis uh, scale of like how many people does it hit, and you can get that from data, and then how bad is it? How's the severity? So is it is the the crash that only happens at midnight on the February 29th when you're entering Vidai characters versus the uh, cursor that disappears for five seconds for every single user using your page. Uh, one is not very severe, but you really want to fix it. it uh, in my current team, one of the things that we're working through is something that we're calling a pain index. Uh, we have a Every lot team I've, I think I've been on at Microsoft has built a pain index. I'm going to build one. All right. Because it's uh, never been done before. No, no, no. But I get to do it data science way, not oh, God. old school test way. No <laughs> spreadsheets this time. Um, Can you use R? If you think of risk... <laughs> <laughs> you're number one too, Alan. Um, if you use... if you, The biggest thing about risk, right, is how frequently does this thing occur... And then what's the severity? So all sort of impact statements, it can be measured by frequency and severity. Now, you guys got to transform or translate what severity means in terms of uh, an impact to the business or the impact to the customer. Now, I'll also tell you, the more you can make those things synonymous, the more you are measuring the business in terms of impact to the customer, then the more um, this really flows. I had the, uh, talking about the glory days again, when I left Bing, I had the ability uh, to, in essence, when I was doing some of the, the data science stuff that I was doing in Bing, I had the essence, the ability to tell individual dev teams the consequence of this bug yesterday by dollar signs. Um, and once we had that, and, and, and the ability to sort of argue through that, no, that wasn't just a random number generator. Uh, Dev started engaging because no one in this room wants to make unhappy customers. But a lot of what we do is based off of an intuition, based off of belief. Well, this would really impact me if I was that guy in, uh, in that situation on February 29th. This is how I feel. Empathy is high. The data allows you to get much more accurate and, and get to the truth. And the, once you get closer to that, you can really iterate faster. So I believe the answer to the question was yes. Next question. <laughs> yes. What about gray area blocks? Let's say a button, maybe it's too small. I, I, I think it's too small. I'm not allowed to block it. So what about the – There's. this is actually a, a – tail on to that question, which is, what do you do with the gray area bugs that are, like, this is wrong, but, you know, so the dev, so the, hopefully just the dev team doesn't have the only choice on what gets fixed. Here, um, it should be, for, for my team, we have a design team that would make that call, and my design team is massively anal, so that bug would get fixed all the time. So ideally, you know, for me, it's, uh, 
it, it sort of depends on the team culture and what you're building. But the way uh, I think he was addressing it is great. I think we all know how to solve any decision-making in any sort of command and control structure. So you had a design team. Well, they're the winners. Yep, they but win. how do you do to have the customer be the winner? I'll give you a hint. It's on the whiteboard. So how do we make the, the political decision to fix all the bugs the design team files? Luckily, the design team fixes in themselves. <laughs> they, 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 own, they own our, they not only design, but they actually know the magic of CSS. So, yes. So the question is, do we have any experience in property-based testing using some tool I haven't heard of? Brent? <laughs> I'm not familiar with property-based testing. and I, I'm pretty sure that we understand what you're talking about, but not in the way you phrased it. Oh, so oh, test fuzzing. generation libraries. Not necessarily no. fuzzing, but test generation like for, for any sort of test data. Yeah, I use a tool, a colleague of mine, I wrote, uh, when I worked in engineering excellence, I worked with a guy named uh, uh, B.J. Rollison, who's one of the authors on the, on the book I wrote. On one of the books, you can buy, no, don't buy them. Plug. Um, plug. <laughs> that, was, that was like Google AdSense just popping in and putting an ad there. Uh, yeah. He wrote this tool called Babel, which I believe you can still find on his website, but it generates strings in any language. So I use like that. And it has an API as well. And I use that today. I also use a tool, um, believe it or not, that uh, James Bach wrote called uh, Proclip. And Proclip is an awesome tool for, it'll generate any length of string you want. And it, with this idea called counter strings, it, it's actually a pretty nice tool for figuring out what the limits of entries are, et cetera. I've, uh, it's a pretty easy way to, I, I, I show dev, like it's not that big of a deal, but you show somebody who hasn't done testing before and they go, oh my God. If you put a long string in my field, it breaks. Who would have thought of that? <laughs> yes. No, so, you, you so have to be, in, you, you definitely have to. So the question was, oh, sorry. when you go 15 minutes to prod, you probably can't build and test everything. So what do you do? How are you guys doing it? I can explain. Okay. Go. So I was asking you the question. One of the things, so first off, you, 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 if you can leverage the system, and it turns out in Bing, uh, we are able to go massively parallel. Uh, and, and a lot of the machines in Bing, the, the production machines, have idle cycles. So we're able to capture those idle cycles and turn them into a parallel test bed. Okay? Certain, but the, the, the other thing, too, is if, if you're going to be live in 15 minutes, then you need to have the data that you can react to much sooner than that so that you can make a decision, it's going to go. So, but you want to have the opportunity to make a decision to stop it. Okay? Um, and, and it's not always going to go. There are certain uh, monitors in place that will stop any flow. But anything that's decision-make, it's up to you. Um, you have to think differently around how your code works. The, the, the best example is any build, uh, and you can do this whether it's a big service like Bing or it's even a non-prem product. If you think about the concept of an RTM build and you, you make a commitment, you change the architecture and the process of your team and say, we're going to have a build that is always RTMable. And one of the things that I actually tell people, 
shippable. Re- releasable. Releasable. He's using weird words. Just ignore him. It's old school words, apparently. It may not map to, to this world, but hopefully you'll follow. So if you have a build that is, it's up to the business team, whoever owns the business team. Hey, any build in this branch, you guys can decide to ship at any time. You don't even need to talk to engineering. Okay. Then you have to then create a a new incremental process such that you incrementally enhance that build. Right. Now, I encourage this process because you don't want, if, if you can get to a point where engineering isn't part of the call of whether or not it ships, then engineering then becomes a little extra diligent around making sure that they're safe because this could be shipped by something that's outside of my control. As you do that incremental, then you do incremental testing. So you, you compare your bits to the RTM bits. And then you can use code coverage, you can use standard tests to really pare down what needs to be done. And then if you then further enhance it with sort of exposure rings with these monitors, you really pare down the amount of proactive testing that you need to do to achieve the same degree of risk prevention. All right, let's do... That's a decision you can make. So if you're making yeah. a yeah, so if you're making a claim that like what's the difference between RTM and prod basically, and you can you can make it's them the, the same, same thing. RTM is for geezers like me who who shipped a lot of products uh, before the web existed. <laughs> yeah, um, RTM meant Quit releasing fun the manufacturer. We had to we had to ship our code to some factory and who knows where so that they can burn our code on the disks. Okay. That was the version of shipping to prod back in the day. All right. Their, their eyes tell me their butts are tired. Anybody have one last question? Yep. Yeah, back here. I haven't heard from you. So the question is, if uh, this is actually a good one to close on. If yep. Agile is about adapting, and we talked about people being resistant to change, uh, don't those work against each other? And the truth is, is you're absolutely right, but people still are resistant to change. It is, uh, people get set in their ways, and anytime there's a sort of, you want to do something differently, there are people, probably like you and I and Brent, who are like, yeah, let's go for it. Let's try this out and see what works. I really believe in trying things out, do a little bit of a time, see what fails, learn from that, try something else. There's, there are other people who are, and we've worked with them. I'm not going to point them out in the room. Evan told me who they were beforehand. But some people who are like, I'm fine the way I am. I don't need to change. We don't need to do it differently. So you have those on both sides. And then you have people in the middle who are kind of just kind of waiting to see what happens. Yeah, whatever, wherever you guys go, I'll go. I'm going for the ride. Um, so, so you'll have 20% on one side, 20% on the other, and everyone else I, I in the middle. I don't know what the numbers are, but yeah. it's you, anytime you're making some sort of change, even if it's about Agile, which is about being adaptive, there's, you still have a, a people problem. There's another Jerry Weinberg quote I like. says, it's always a people problem. And you always have to figure out how to, what's the motivation going to be to get people to change? Some people are very much driven by data. Some people are driven by, you know, more intrinsic things. Like some people are just excited about, I'm a big fan of the Dan Pink work. Talking about change, Dan Pink says that people are, give, people are motivated by progress. So if you can show them with this change, like, oh, we're moving faster and cool things are happening, then those naysayers will slowly, slowly jump on board. You have to have a seed in which everyone agrees. 
Like yeah. if, if we are all deciding that, hey, it is valuable to the business that we ship every hour and, and uh, it's going to affect income, growth, something that the business values, uh, then, yeah, a lot of the adaptability can come into play. But a lot of people uh, honestly don't believe in adaptability. I don't know if that's going to be here. Uh, but they don't see it and they don't understand that value. Uh, in addition to that, Alan has this, um, I'll, I'll let him decide if he introduces you to um, the definition behind fragile teams. But you've all, you've all um, encountered those teams where, hey, we're going to be agile. And then the person who's leading that agile transformation, basically they read the first chapter of the Schwab book and then decided, oh, they get the rest of it. And then they deploy... Uh, part of the concept that they picked up and, and the rest of the stuff that they messed up or haven't fully absorbed yeah. and then, and then discover, Oh, agile is a, a bunch of crap. It doesn't work. It was primarily because the, what you did wasn't agile. So one, I, I probably won't go deep into fragile, but fragile is when you uh, uh, just pick a few parts of agile and then try and go with them and, and they don't work for you. But I, one thing I want to make sure I mention before we close is Elizabeth, she, Elizabeth Hendrickson. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Sorry, Elizabeth. Um, <laughs> she has this quote, which I'll get all horribly paraphrased about agile. The litmus test for agile is frequently delivering, delivering frequent customer value at a sustainable pace. If you're doing that, you're probably agile. doesn't matter if you're to the book on something or far on the book, but if you're too busy, it's really easy to get stuck in the process. Like we've probably looped all the way around to where we started. But frequently delivering software at a sustainable pace, and that has doing that may cause you to change some of the things we talked about today, like how lines are blurred between uh, what dev and test were forever, and how um, engineering processes work, and who owns what, how to gain those efficiencies to get that frequency that you need. I I um also don't encourage anymore the usage of the term agile, even though I've used it a lot here. I definitely prefer adaptable. Agile means is highly overloaded. It means multiple different things. Uh, I may or may not, it, it, those of you who are agile experts, you may or may not agree with me in terms of, let's say, a specific debate, but hopefully would all would agree that adaptability is really what's critical, really what's important, and there's different techniques and tools to get there. Yeah, one thing I learned from Brent was on the spectrum, there's, you know, waterfall was a predictive model. And then there was spiral and some forms of agile, which are kind of in that middle ground of their iterative models. Scrum is an example of that. Yeah, so you go from uh, predictive to iterative to adaptive. And I think the, the right way to make software, especially web software, in, at least for this decade, might, might change 10 years from now, but I doubt it, is to make sure you're adaptable. Make sure you're always learning uh, from your customer, always learning from your engineering practices, et cetera. Yeah. Anything else? All right. No, I think we've closed out. Okay. Uh, Once again, I'm not Brent. I am. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys.